This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. In this special hour-long episode, we'll explore vision care during the pandemic. This episode is a collaboration with Fighting Blindness Canada. COVID-19 has posed unique challenges for patients, eye care specialists, and advocates in the vision care community. In the next 60 minutes, we'll meet experts, answer common questions, and learn about best practices to preserve and promote vision care. Later on in the program, we'll speak to Dr. Deepa Yoganathan, an ophthalmologist with Windsor Eye Associates, who has advice and answers to your most common questions. But first, Liz Tully is a retired HR professional and a patient with wet AMD. She shares her first-hand account of managing her vision care during the pandemic. Liz is in London, Ontario. Liz, welcome to The Pulse. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. So tell us a little bit about your eye condition. When were you diagnosed with uh, macular degeneration? What kind of macular degeneration do you have? And uh, what sort of an impact has it had on your life? Well, um, I was very fortunate in that um, I became aware in my early 40s that my mother had macular degeneration, and so did two of her cousins. And at that time, it was not known that it was genetic, but uh, one of her cousins did say to me, so there is a possibility you might get it because it could be in the family line. So mm-hmm. that gave me a heads up at a very early age. I didn't know exactly what macular degeneration was, but I knew it had to do with your eyes, and I didn't want to get it if I could avoid it. Mm-hmm. So in my, I also knew it was something that tended to um, strike people when they were older. So I, in my early 50s, I guess it was, I started having my eyes checked on a regular basis, but I wasn't officially diagnosed as having macular degeneration until my mid-50s when I asked the ophthalmologist who I was going to if what he called tired spots were for me what I knew as drusen, and he said, well, yes. And I said, so then I do have macular degeneration. And he said, yes, but it's very early stages and it may never affect your life. Mm -hmm. And he was right on that score to the extent that I didn't really notice the impact on my vision until, oh, my mid-60s, early 70s. Um, So it was stealthily working away. Um, It was dry AMD initially, which it always is, I'm told. Mm -hmm. And I just lived my life. I wore glasses. I'd worn them since I was 10. But suddenly I started to notice that uh, lines were blending together or a word was jumping up or down from the line above or below. And initially I thought it was probably just eye fatigue, but um, I was disabused of that after I had uh, my cataracts removed. And so I carried on with just basic moderate dry AMD in both eyes for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Then I went to um, Scotland for a holiday 
with my family, and I sensed that something was happening with my eyes, but I didn't know exactly what it was because my vision wasn't affected. But when I came home, I went to my retinal specialist right away, and he told me I now had wet macular degeneration. Mm. And that really stunned me because I knew that wet macular degeneration was the more, more severe form, and I knew that I could become severely, severely sight impaired because of it. So that was a huge blow to me. But mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate. I am able to have eye injections, which have been holding that at bay. Mm-hmm. And then last year, I had another whoopsie in March when all of a sudden I went from looking at a recipe to just seeing a sea of gray in front of my eyes. Oh, dear. And I had no idea what that was. I really was panicked because that was literally in a split second. Turned my head away, turned back, and couldn't see a thing. Mm. So I was able to contact my retinal specialist uh, that weekend. And, of course, it was a weekend. And ironically, it was a weekend before the first shutdown. Yeah. So uh, he told me that he was not concerned, but we were able to pull up my next appointment by a week. And when I went to see him, we discovered that I now had what's called geographic atrophy in my left eye, which is an advanced, another advanced form of macular degeneration. So at this point, I have what would clinically be diagnosed as advanced macular degeneration in both eyes, but for different reasons. Although the uh, the eye that has the wet could also develop the other more severely. However, I would also like to say before people get too alarmed is that although that is a clinical diagnosis, although the injections have been able to hold the wet macular degeneration, which are little blood vessels that do not belong in my retina, is able to destroy them and prevent new ones from developing, I actually see much better than that diagnosis would suggest. Mm-hmm. So I can certainly get around okay. I can do a lot of the things in my home. But the most problematic thing for me now is reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me just ask you a little bit about getting those injections. This wouldn't necessarily have been a problem before the pandemic, but did things change for you at all? And in what ways did things change for you after the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown? Were you still able to go in and get your injections or were there some unforeseen complications? I have been very, very, very fortunate in that I have been able to continue to get my injections. I can't tell you how grateful I am. The clinic is still open. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people might feel a bit nervous about any kind of an eye appointment. I've had people say things like, I don't even want to go and get an eye exam right now because I'm so worried about getting in close contact with uh, instruments and machines that other people have been in close contact with. How would you assuage some of their concerns? Did you feel that they were adequately following all the public health protocols? How were they making sure you were kept safe? Oh, they were absolutely following all the protocols. In fact, (laughs) 
the first injection I went for after the start of the shutdown, I didn't even recognize my doctor, all decked out in all his PPE, including something on his head, so I could just see the two little tiny areas where (laughs) he was looking at me. And I I had no concerns about uh, the clinic. All the protocols that uh, were required were in place. Only a patients are allowed to go into the clinic, which is a bit of a problem when somebody has brought you because it means the person who has come with you has got to find a way to kill time until your appointment is over. And it's not so bad now, but in the winter that could be a challenge because, mm-hmm. of course, the bil- it was a medical building and there were no seats in any of the uh, halls or outside of any of the, uh, the stores or, you know, the benches that they often have. So I felt badly about someone who was taking me. But in terms of the safety in the clinic, no concerns whatsoever. Very few of us were there at one time. In fact, initially, the first appointment I went to, I was the only patient, which was a very eerie feeling when usually it's a full clinic of people waiting to get their injections. Well, that's what I was going to say. Normally, you do have this full clinic. And so how are they handling that now? Is it just one patient at a time? Or are they uh, bringing patients in in smaller numbers with social distancing? What's the game plan? Well, it's been, um, let's see, it's been about a month since I had my last injection. Initially, it was just one patient at a time. So where there were used to be a sea of seats, uh, the waiting room is split in half, and where there used to be the sea of seats on both halves, there's now just very few chairs socially distanced, six feet apart. No one is allowed in, as I say, except for patients, except in uh, exceptional circumstances if somebody needs, you know, uh, assistance getting around. So that was part of it. And no, now the last couple of times there's certainly been more of us, and all of our six chairs have been taken up, but still very few people. I'm very aware that his staff, of course, they are all wearing PPE, and the area where you go into to have your injection is cleaned between patients. I can see that happening in front of my eyes. So I have no concerns about the um, the cleanliness or the observance of all the protocols within the clinic. Ironically, in a way, my one of my biggest concerns is I want to make very, very sure that I never have to feel if somehow the virus did get in that I was the one who brought it in. Mm-hmm. So I am really careful before I go, in fact, two weeks before my next appointment, I just go into a shutdown where I literally do not leave my apartment for the two weeks, figuring if anything has happened, then that would be known before then. But in reality, I I barely leave my apartment anyway, Mm -hmm. because I really want to get those injections. I mean, (laughs) they are ruling my life at the moment, making Mm -hmm. sure I do everything I can that I can continue to get them. And I know the clinic and the doctor is doing everything they can to ensure that patients will be able to continue to get them. 
And I would really urge anyone who is dependent on these injections to keep them up because if you have a extended break uh, in the schedule when you should be getting them, that can have a very severe impact on your eyesight. And that's mm-hmm. what I want to avoid. Oh, that's quite understandable. And yet, you know, taking the measures that you've undertaken, taking two weeks uh, of staying home right before each injection, I am sure that has required some sacrifices. How have you managed to work around the fact that you may not be able to do a lot of things that you were previously doing just so that you can prioritize your eye health? You know, in that old saying, I keep my eye on the prize. (laughs) Pun unintended. Yeah. And the prize is getting those injections. Mm Mm-hmm. And that keeps me on the straight and narrow. (laughs) Yeah, Liz, I was listening to you talking before, and I couldn't imagine the shock of what you might have had to go through last March. I mean, I was in shock because of the, the, the swiftness with which they had the lockdowns and the spread of the virus. I cannot imagine the additional challenges with having your vision change in the middle of all of that, as you described to us. Mm-hmm. How did you cope? Because you seem to be in really good spirits, if I do say so myself. How did you cope? How are you managing to sort of look on the bright side of things? Well, part of it is what happened afterwards. Uh, the, the next day, that was on the Saturday, on the Sunday, I could see a tiny bit better. And by the time I saw my doctor on the Tuesday, although my sight was nothing like what it had been before uh, the onset of the geographic atrophy, it Mm -hmm. was better. And I asked him why that was, and he just sort of looked at me and said, it's all about the brain. Mm -hmm. And what was happening Again, of course, unbeknownst to me, my brain was busily trying to adjust for this new reality and figure out what it could do to try to bring my vision back more to where it had been. And you may have heard about the, the uh, what do they call it, plasticity of the brain? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it was at work. And so today, my vision is better than it was then. It certainly is not what it was before the GA struck me, but it is much better. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And, you know, I hate to say it. Well, maybe I don't hate to say it, but I think this whole pandemic has gone to, sh- gone to show us just how resilient and how able to adapt everybody is. Liz, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and speaking to you today on the program. Thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. I'm Joita Gupta. Today we're talking in a special one-hour episode about vision care during the pandemic. Earlier in the program, you heard from Liz Tully, who is a patient who shared her lived experience of taking care of her eyesight and her vision during the pandemic. And while that patient perspective is obviously very important, we also wanted to bring in an expert. After all, ophthalmologists and optometrists have been seeing a number of patients despite COVID-19. For another perspective on vision care during the pandemic, we've reached Dr. Deepa Yoganathan. Dr. Yoganathan is an ophthalmologist at Windsor Eye Associates and assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Science at the University of Toronto. She joins us from Ann Arbor this morning. Dr. Yoganathan, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. 
So we've got a number of questions to get to today from members of our audience, from members of the community, because there is a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic. But even before we get into some of those questions, let me ask you what I'm sure is a very basic question. Why is it important to have your eyes examined? Why is an eye exam so important? Well, in general, um, eye examinations can detect a lot of systemic diseases uh, that you that may be silent. Uh, for example, the most common uh, would be diabetes. So if mm -hmm. you have diabetes, uh, it is imperative that you get your retina examined every year. Um, and the reason for that is because people with diabetes can develop uh, blood or uh, fat deposits or fluid deposits in your retina. And if caught early, they can be treated and blindness can be prevented. If caught mm -hmm. late, um, you know, blindness uh, may be inevitable. So that mm -hmm. would be the most common preventative measure that someone with diabetes um, can take. Um, mm -hmm. In general, it's a good idea to get a general eye health exam um, to take a look at things like cataract um, to make sure you don't have glaucoma and, and just general screenings because a lot of things may not have any visual complaints actually. Mm -hmm. So this, similarly to going to see your family doctor, I think going to an eye health specialist is, is a good idea as well. Hmm. And who should be going to get these eye exams? Children under 18? Uh, is it people over 65? Is there a target group or should everyone make this a priority? Uh, I think um, everyone should, should go uh, at least um, every two years. Uh, uh, yeah. If you have diabetes, then you should go every year. Well, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have been intending to go and get those eye exams, but then the pandemic happened. And I'm so curious to find out about how COVID-19 might have affected your practice um, and, you know, what you've done to adapt and to make changes. Yes, you know, I can't believe it's been over a year, but I remember so distinctly uh, last March, uh, the decision, the difficult decision um, to shut down our practice, uh, you know, for my, my children's school to close and our hospital clinics to close. And, you know, we thought we would be closed for a month and I scheduled all my patients to come back a month later. Um, and it just wasn't what we expected. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Uh, we did shut down uh, for a couple of uh, months except for emergencies and then we realized that um, <clears throat> in many medical specialties um, uh, or medicine in general that if we don't see our patients bad things will happen um, so we slowly brought patients back uh, we had to make very radical changes uh, in our physical structure uh, of our clinic. We put barriers everywhere. We kept the door closed. We had to um, check uh, temperatures at the door, perform COVID screening questionnaires over the phone and in person. Um, we were very strict about who we let in um, to the office. 
so uh, you know we've had to adapt. All, all all physicians and clinicians have had to adapt uh, since then. So now uh, we are back to a different schedule, uh, um, and the reason why we've been able to adapt is just by hiring a lot more staff. Uh, so for example, we have um, someone to uh, take temperatures at the door. We have someone to clean the front waiting room. We have someone to clean the back waiting room. We have markers all over the floor to separate people six feet apart. We have removed, you know, uh, instead of having, um, you know, 75 chairs in the clinic, we only have 25 waiting room chairs in the clinic. So we've had to do everything possible to keep our patients safe. And so thankfully, we have not um, heard of anyone, you know, ever coming into our office being sick. No one has reported that they were in our office and then and then um, developed COVID thereafter. I remember in years gone by, uh, my parents had been at a hospital in Toronto getting their eyes examined and they got a phone call from the receptionist saying that, uh, you know, just so you're aware, there was a person in the reception area with you who had pink eye, which of course, as you know, is very contagious. And they said, you know, try to take some precautions and just be on the lookout for that. So I'm sure this is something that you already have some prior experience with. If it came to your attention that one of your patients did, despite your precautions, uh, end up having a case of COVID-19, what steps would you take afterwards to inform everybody else to make sure that everyone is staying safe? Oh, well, we ha- we would call uh, all of our patients right away to let them know. We would call public health uh, to let them know. And uh, thankfully, you know, in Canada, we have a very good tracing um, team uh, sorry, tracing app where people are notified with alerts if they have been mm-hmm. exposed uh, for longer than 15 minutes. Uh, I, I have a couple of friends in Toronto who in the um, in their children's uh, drop-off line for school, um, you know, were exposed uh, because they were waiting longer than 15 minutes. So, um uh, they, you know, thankfully in Canada, we have this great technology that has been able to assist. So we, we have a COVID a protocol and COVID regulations in place. Um, thankfully, thankfully, we haven't um, had to do that as yet. One of the things I was curious about, having taken many eye exams in my, in my life, is the proximity of uh, the person who's conducting the exam uh, compared to the person who's in the chair getting the exam done. So how are you managing if, if social distancing isn't really a, a possibility? How are you yourself staying safe and making sure your patients are staying safe when you're interacting with your patients? That's a great question. Um, you know, the, the, the doctor who sounded the alarm in Wuhan um, regarding COVID uh, was an ophthalmologist um, and he mm-hmm. died. Um, and, you know, we owe a lot to him for sacrificing his life for letting people know about this, this virus. Um, it's very unfortunate that that, you know, that so many people have passed away uh, from this. Uh, but of course, any doctor who is especially close uh, to the patient is at risk. And it's not just the doctors, but our staff, you know, our photographers and our technicians all come into mm-hmm. close contact. Um, so uh, we all wear N95 masks. Um, all of my staff wear 
protective goggles as well. Um, every patient who comes into the door has to wear a properly fitting mask, um, not just a handkerchief or anything like that. Mm -hmm. At the slit lamp, we have a physical barrier. So we have a plastic um, uh, or acrylic partition um, that it goes between the patient um, and ourselves. Uh, and at the height, you know, last year when we were very concerned, we, we basically cut out a lot of the diagnostic tests um, that were mm -hmm. uh, not critical to uh, the treatment. So, for example, if someone is coming in, um, I'm a retina specialist, uh, so mm -hmm. I perform injections in the eye very commonly. Sometimes they need monthly injections. And mm -hmm. so um, usually we, we uh, check vision and, and um, do some testing of the retina before the injection. And during that time, we tried to cut out as much as possible and just did the injection. Thankfully, the whole process is very fast. So mm -hmm. uh, when we come in and do the injection, it takes about a minute. And so um, the actual contact time is very short. So my general method of addressing this whole issue is to increase my efficiency as much as possible so that I can try to get the patients through all the uh, steps of their exam as efficiently as possible. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about how you had to postpone a lot of appointments when the first lockdowns happened. What happened to those patients? Were they ever able to come back and get their eyes tested and get their eye care taken care uh, looked after? Or um, did you just sort of lose track of those patients? That's a great question. Uh, we were able to bring back um, everyone, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. If there's any patient listening who has not come back, please come back and see me. <laughs> um, but yes, it was uh, because we basically you know, let not just shut down the clinic, but our, we didn't have any staff come in either to protect our staff. So mm -hmm. basically, um, we didn't have the, enough people to call the patients and we didn't have the charts and we didn't, you know, all of the, the, the management that occurs um, in running a clinic. So it was, mm -hmm. it was very challenging to go back and look through all the schedules of how to bring the patients back. But to my knowledge, we were able to bring everyone back. Earlier in the program, we spoke to a woman who uh, has been going to her eye doctor to get frequent uh, injections on a monthly basis. Of course, this is very crucial to her eye health. How many such patients have been regular with their appointments, people who might need injections or other routine eye care because of a progressive eye condition? And how many people have disappeared and they just don't want to risk uh, contracting COVID-19, even as their vision might deteriorate? Surprisingly, I would say the majority uh, feel comfortable. Uh, so I would say at least over 95% of the patients feel comfortable um, in our clinic uh, in terms of the precautions uh, that we've taken. Um, I think because we're so vigilant about the cleaning and um, making sure that everybody is has the proper P PPE. I think they do feel uh, comfortable. There's a few patients who were hesitant 
to go into the hospital uh, mm. for surgery uh, because they didn't want to be exposed to the hospital. And I can understand that. Um, and so we, you know, you have to have difficult conversations about the pros and cons and ultimately, um, you know, it's up to the patient to do what they feel is right. Uh, thankful. And we actually did a study, um, a survey. We sur at the beginning when we started reopening our clinic, we did surveys of all the patients that came through to ask them about their anxiety level prior to the appointment and after mm. the appointment or, or let's say during. And prior to the appointment, they were extremely anxious. But after the appointment, we were able to alleviate some of those fears. Um, so I think it's it's a very common, um, you know, it's a very common feeling to be anxious if you're going mm -hmm. into public and you haven't been in public for a year, let's say. Uh, but I think uh, that people realize that they have to do this in order to preserve um, their health. Now, speaking of surgeries, there's been a lot of talk and a lot in the news about provinces choosing to put a hold on non-essential or elective surgeries to try and deal with some of the issues that have come out of COVID-19. What about cataract surgeries? Um, are those considered essential? What's been happening to those? Are people able to get cataract surgeries now or is that been put on hold? Yes, people are able to get their cataract surgery. Uh, it depends on uh, the time over the last year. So currently, just one week ago, um, the government asked us to hold all elective surgeries in the hospital. And the purpose of that is to uh, preserve the nursing staff and the ICU beds uh, for example, in Windsor, we are taking patients in our ICU from Toronto because the Toronto ICUs are reaching capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we are open to inter, you know, intraprovincial transfers, um, and we want to preserve our staff. And I think that is um, understandable to, to help support other parts of, of the province. Uh, our, in Windsor, our rates are actually much better now than they were before, but everyone is bracing um, for the next um, surge, of course. Um, in Windsor, we have a, a, a cataract suite that is outside of the hospital, so um, that is not affected by nursing staff or ICU beds, obviously, so patients are able to get their cataract surgery outside of the hospital. And of course, this is going to change week to week um, as the numbers go up and down. I'm Joyita Gupta, and today we're talking about eye health and eye care in a one-hour special episode. My guest right now is ophthalmologist Dr. Deepa Yoganathan. Dr. Yoganathan, a lot of people are wondering if there is a relationship between COVID-19 and eye health. If you were to contract COVID-19, could this have an impact on your eye health? There have been um, many reports of occlusive, uh, vascular occlusive disease uh, potentially related to COVID. Um, so uh, people are sharing multiple cases of, of retina issues that they've seen um, because it's not a 
a long-term study or a prospective study, we don't know exactly what the association is. Uh, but people have definitely reported a variety of eye issues um, with COVID. Mm. Uh, when you say vascular occlusive uh, diseases, what, what exactly are you referring to for those of us who are not in the know? <laughs> Sorry about that. But basically, uh, people have reported that the blood flow can get backed up in their blood vessels or in their circulation, and that can lead to uh, certain findings in, in, in their eyes. Um, it can lead to vision loss. Uh, we don't know if this is specifically related to COVID, but we know that it has been found around the same time that people have been diagnosed with COVID. And how likely is it that someone will experience problems with their vision if they also end up contracting COVID-19? It would be very rare. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at the, the hundreds of thousands of cases of COVID eye symptoms, are pretty rare. Um, there were multiple cases of conjunctivitis uh, associated, meaning conjunctivitis, meaning some kind of pink eye mm -hmm. um, or red eye rather um, associated with COVID. Uh, but again, um, you know, for example, I never saw a case in my practice. Um, we have just shared cases amongst the ophthalmology community um, and publications that it has happened. Just something to keep an eye on, pun unintended, of course. Speaking of COVID-19 and the relationship to eye health, I'm curious about the vaccines. We've heard a lot of talk about vaccines. There are many types, as you know, um, and some talk now about uh, side effects like blood clot. So I'm curious about whether there is a relationship between one or, or more vaccines for COVID-19 and vision health? Uh, again, similarly, um, we have exchanged stories, for example, people developing uh, shingles or um, herpes uh, uh, lesion, you know, uh, findings after getting the vaccine. Again, very rare, but, you know, these things, these things can happen. So I would never discourage someone from getting a vaccine because mm. obviously the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, we're talking about prevention of death. Um, but um, there are cases <clears throat> of ocular, um, ocular presentations that have occurred after uh, getting the vaccine. Mm. One of the things we've all noticed is that we're spending a lot more time looking at our screens. And I know this has been asked before, but I'll ask you again, what's the impact of this increased exposure to screens, smartphones, tablets, what have you? Um, and how does that relate to our vision health? Uh, this question has been going on long before COVID ever mm. came about. Exactly. Uh, but, <laughs> but basically, any time that you're reading or looking at something up close, uh, you should always take a break uh, to look far. You know, you don't want your eyes to be fixed at a certain distance uh, for that long. So I think uh, similarly, uh, if you're sitting all day on your Zoom conferences, you should take a break to walk around. You want to prevent blood clots. You want to make sure 
that things keep moving. In terms of actual, you know, eye disease that could form, uh, there there is nothing really that could happen um, mm-hmm. from being on your, you know, on your phone or your computer or being in the dark. But I would definitely recommend taking a break uh, to make sure that you're looking at things um, in the distance. Mm-hmm. Well, nevertheless, I mean, I think that's still interest in protecting our vision and protecting our eyesight. So what are some of the things that we can do apart from coming to see you if we have a problem? <laughs> uh, I would say the most common uh, complaint that people have nowadays uh, is related to dry eyes. So mm-hmm. um, many people are keeping themselves indoors. Many people are staring at screens. Um, and that can lead to um, the eye surface drying out. Um, and the easiest way to fix that is by using artificial tears, uh, which can be purchased over the counter and used four times a day. And that can definitely lead to improved uh, comfort of patients' eyes. In general, eye health is related to what is, you know, healthy for your body. Uh, Mm -hmm. So in terms of diet, eating green leafy vegetables, orange vegetables, you know, having a well-balanced diet with antioxidants and avoiding smoking, those are all ways to ensure or improve eye health. I'm glad to hear I wasn't off the mark there with the green leafy vegetables or the the orange vegetables or things that my mom has been telling me for years. It's nice to hear it. Uh, it's nice to hear it confirmed. Uh, just before exactly. I let you go, we've had we've uh, had a really extensive conversation about the measures that you've taken to keep your patients safe during the pandemic, and yet. If someone was feeling a bit nervous about making that appointment or coming in for a checkup, what advice would you give them? I would say we can always schedule a phone call and see if we can uh, determine not just, you know, how crucial it is for them to come in, but, you know, have a discussion about what's making them uh, nervous. Uh, I definitely do call patients um, if I can if the purpose of their visit is just to give them uh, an update on lab results, for example, I don't encourage patients to come in if I don't have to physically look at their eyes. Uh, But you know, uh, as an ophthalmologist, most of our um, work that we need to do is in person. But I think communication upfront to alleviate any nervousness or anxiety Uh, would be the first step. Well, I think that sounds like some really good advice. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a, a lovely chat. Dr. Deepa Yoganathan is an ophthalmologist at Windsor Eye Associates and assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Science at the University of Toronto. She was in Ann Arbor this morning. Just a quick note, Although we shared Dr. Yoganathan's experience of cataract surgeries in Windsor, we want to qualify that by saying that in many other parts of the country, there have been delays in cataract surgeries, which have caused a number of complications for patients. So while we are committed to bringing you the experiences of physicians, we also want to note here or disclaim that the experience might be very different in whichever part of the country you live in. 
Now, in the 10 minutes that we have left, we want to draw your attention to some resources and programs offered to you by Fighting Blindness Canada to discuss how FBC can support your vision health during the pandemic, we've reached Dr. Larissa Moniz. Dr. Moniz is Director of Research and Mission at Fighting Blindness Canada. She joins us from Toronto. Dr. Moniz, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about how FBC transitioned uh, and, and made some changes in response to the pandemic. How did you folks pivot? Well, as you can imagine, like everybody else, when the pandemic hit in March, um, there were a few things that we, we we wanted to consider. So the first thing, we realized there were a lot of questions and concerns in the community about the effect of COVID on things like day-to-day living, on social distancing, and cancellation of eye appointments. So the first thing we really wanted to do was try to address this by creating a number of new resources. Mm-hmm. So we, um, in collaboration with some healthcare professionals, we developed some FAQs about commonly asked questions about um, living with an eye disease during COVID or working um, with a mental health professional to offer tips about ways to protect your mental health during COVID. So we created these resources, put them on the website. And then we also had to pivot from our in-person education events. This was one of the biggest changes. We normally hold education events around the country. And so, of course, we had to cancel them. But we switched instead to doing virtual webinars, which we're calling Viewpoint. So these are one hour to one and a half hour long webinars where we get eye healthcare experts or individuals who have lived experience. And we discuss different topics and we answer audience questions. So this was a big change for us. And in the past year, we've been holding them every two to four weeks on different subjects. So for instance, um, about eye care during COVID right at the beginning, but also on different eye diseases, new innovative treatments. And overall, we've actually found it's been such a great way to still reach out and talk to our community. Um, And in a way that we actually couldn't do before when we were doing in-person events. So we we miss some of that in-person interaction, of course, but we get to reach a much larger audience right now. So it's been... um, so there's a silver lining out of, mm-hmm. out of the pandemic. We also have put the, um, the webinars up on YouTube afterwards. So there's an, an opportunity for even more people to, um, to get this great educational content, even if they can't attend the webinar in person. Mm, that's always great. So tell me a little bit about who your target audience is for, for the webinars. Who are you hoping to reach out to? So it's a um, pretty broad group of people, actually. So the primary audience is our community who are either living with an eye disease or maybe who know somebody who has an eye disease and are interested in knowing more. Um, And so we really try to aim the conversation at sort of a, I would say, a general audience level. We're not necessarily Mm. talking to experts, but we also definitely get healthcare professionals joining. We get a lot of individuals who work with the vision loss community, perhaps rehab specialists that they often join, join the conversations as well. Now, I know you've been doing these for quite some time. Tell us about some of the speakers you featured on the webinars in the past. And if you know about some of the speakers you'll be featuring down the road in future. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, our first um, webinar was with um, Dr. Natan Chowdhury, who is an ophthalmologist here in Toronto, and he was talking about um, eye care during COVID, so what his clinic has had to do to make sure patients are safe. 
We've also had conversations with um, a community member um, talking to their eye care provider um, about their experience living with COVID. And then in non-COVID topics, we've had um, conversations about um, sort of 101 um, top questions about um, age-related macular degeneration. Our latest one, which was a really, really popular session, and a really actually exciting session to be part of, we had Dr. Cynthia Kin from Montreal, who is ask, answering questions about um, gene, genetics and gene therapy, largely for inherited retinal diseases, but for all other diseases as, as well. And then our next one coming up on May 6th is about caregivers, which is a topic we haven't actually covered before, but trying to understand how caregivers feel, what are some of the um, the barriers or challenges they have, what are some of the joys they have from, from supporting somebody who has vision loss. I know one of the facets of the work that the FBC does is a lot of excellent research into the state of eye care, into various eye diseases. What impact, if any, has the pandemic had on the state of vision research in Canada? Yeah, this has been a challenging time for vision researchers, just like everybody else. So at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of research had to stop. So everybody had to go home because non-essential work couldn't couldn't take place. So this means many labs either closed or they, in most cases, just severely reduced the amount of research that they could do. So they were keeping crucial experiments going because a lot of times experiments are using tools such as cell lines that have taken years and years to make. So some of those were still able to go on, but much, much more slowly. Mm-hmm. So talking to scientists during this time, it was definitely extremely sort of stressful and frustrating, but then they also, as the months went on, um, noticed that there were some opportunities as well because it gave them the time to sit down and analyze data or write a paper. So again, I think trying to see a silver lining in what is a, a tough situation. Um, luckily, lab restrictions started to open up um, in the summer last year. And so most labs are largely opened up, but they're still often working with reduced numbers in the lab at one time. So they might be doing shift work. So you don't have every single person there. So try to keep numbers down, try to work in a safe way. That makes sense. I want to pick up on that word opportunity, just because one of the things I've noticed in covering a lot of research on this program is how much uh, research has actually come out of the pandemic itself. So uh, a lot of research, say, into eating disorders stemming from the pandemic. How has research questions, how have research questions evolved, would you say, as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think this is like most applicable to research about clinical research. So we have our researchers who are trying to understand the um, why vision loss occurs, so more discovery science. So a lot of those mm-hmm. questions haven't necessarily changed. They're obviously maybe have used the opportunity because they've had more time to do some deep reading and research, maybe op- opened up some new avenues. But definitely in clinical research, a lot of the focus right now is really trying to understand the impact that COVID and disruption in eye care is having on patients. So some studies that have just come out recently have been the impact that it will have on wait times for cataract surgery. So everybody knows there's always wait times and the pandemic is just really pushing us to the limit here, really drastically increasing the wait times for cataract surgery. We know that a lot of patients have missed some of their appointments if they get injections of anti-VEGF for age-related macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy. So 
we, we know that the appointments have been missed, but now trying to understand what does it mean for their eye health and for those outcomes. Um, and then there's also been other negative effects. For instance, there are some reports that things like Charles Bonnet syndrome, which is where individuals see hallucinations, have got worse, probably triggered by stress. So there's both the um, sort of psychological impact as well as the impact on, on eye health that, that researchers are looking at right now. Just before I let you go, you've talked a lot about some of the resources that are available. You talked about the webinars. You talked about the FAQ section. Are there any other resources uh, for the public if they want to educate themselves about their eye health that they could turn to on your website or even beyond that? Yes, definitely. So I would say two things beyond our sort of website and coming to our great education webinars. But if um, you're interested in what we do and want to keep up to date, um, you should definitely join our e-newsletter. So you'll get a monthly e-newsletter with stories about research, um, new innovative treatments, but also upcoming events. And then we also have a health information line where individuals can call in and or they can email in and ask questions about their eye health, about um, are there potentially clinical trials for them, if they have a question and they haven't been able to reach their doctor. So we don't offer health information per se, but we can Mm -hmm. sort of help guide you to find the information that you need. So you can find all that information on our website. And what is your website? It is fightingblindness.ca. Excellent. Dr. Moniz, thank you so much for being on the program today. I hope we get a chance to do this again. I plan to have some other episodes in collaboration with the FBC. So hopefully we'll chat again soon in the near future. Dr. Larissa Muniz is Director, Research and Mission at Fighting Blindness Canada. She was in Toronto. Well, folks, that's all the time we have today. But if you missed any of my conversations, please do find us as a podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I want to thank the many guests on our program today, Liz Tully, Dr. Deepa Yoganathan, Dr. Larissa Monez. With special thanks to Morgan Ionson and Faye Knights from Fighting Blindness Canada. Technical production for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid and Sam Robinson. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Janice Davidson-Presick is the manager for marketing and communication. If you have any feedback for us, you can write to us at AMI Audio on Twitter, use the hashtag PulseAMI, send us an email at feedback at AMI.ca, or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And leave us your permission to play the audio on the program. I hope you found this episode helpful. I'm sure we'll do other collaborations with FBC in future, and I hope you will tune in for that and for other episodes of The Pulse right here on AMI-audio. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.